Welcome to the Juggling Without Balls podcast. My name is Monica Parkin and I am your host. And every week on the show, I'm going to be talking to powerful, successful women who juggle it all. And when I say juggle it all, I mean everything. Kids, health, aged parents, careers, relationships, you name it, we're going to talk about it. So stick around, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a seat and enjoy the show. Hello, jugglers, and welcome to another episode. Today, my guest on the show is Dr. Janice McLaughlin from Valley Care Medical in the Comox Valley. Janice is an active and enthusiastic mom, wife, and family physician. She's passionate about wellness for children and youth, and she tempers her own inner life with an active mindfulness meditation practice. She also facilitates mindfulness meditation in others, and she has a few different projects on the go that we're going to talk about today, as well as some of the pivots around COVID. Welcome, Dr. Janice McLaughlin. Okay, welcome. As you heard in the intro, I have Dr. Janice McLaughlin from Valley Care Medical here with me as a guest today. And we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. And I'm just super delighted to have her on the show. So welcome. It's so great to be here. Thanks, Monica. Awesome. So one of the first questions I wanted to ask you is what made you decide to go into medicine? And then two, you get to choose some paths once you get in there. Are you going to choose a specialty? Are you going to do family practice? And you chose family medicine. So do you want to walk me through what your oh, how sure. you ended up in medicine and then how you ended up down that path? Yeah, so medicine, it's a little unclear how the seed was planted. I found this old Dr. Seuss fill-in-the-blank book from when I was about five. And at that time in my life, I wanted to be a nurse. And I think I didn't know that women could be doctors at that point. And by grade six, actually, I would tell people I wanted to be a doctor and find the cure for cancer. I pretty actively sought out opportunities to do like first aid. I was a lifeguard when I was 12 and 13. I worked as a lifeguard extensively till I was in my 20s, actually, all through university. And also I had a couple occasions when I was in my teen years where like one time a friend of mine fell off a cliff and I provided the first aid. She broke her neck, actually. We were at this church retreat and it was weird. I was like 16. And I remember bossing the adults around and telling them what to do and running the whole thing. And then two years later, a friend of mine, again at church, it was clearly dangerous. I know, had a stroke actually at choir practice and she was 14. And again, I was providing first aid and bossing the adults around and organizing everything. So it was very confidence building that, wow, like this thing that I really enjoy, which was providing at that point first aid and that kind of thing to people was something that I could do. And I also seemed to be able to boss adults around, which was cool. (laughs) So I just plugged along and kept picking courses that aligned with medical school. I did my undergrad in biochemistry and then applied to a few schools, got into UBC and into Queens and chose to go to UBC at that point and graduated from there. Nice. Okay. And the decision then to go you know, into family practice as opposed to something else. It's such a big decision to have to make before you really have a handle on what it's going to look like, right? It was funny. It's funny because it wasn't actually an active decision. It was a bit of a passive decision. I had actually wanted to be a specialist. I was going to go into general surgery or obstetrics and gynecology. And I took a year off to decide at that point you could get a general license after an internship. You can't do that anymore, but that was the old days. And so I took that year off, got pregnant, oh. <laughs> a bit of a surprise. And 
I remember very distinctly, I was filling out the application forms for surgical residency and looking at my baby, who's now 29, in the car seat and me filling out these applications like, I can't do this. Yeah, like, I cannot sacrifice another five years. Uh, I had no idea I would be as maternal as I was and that my children would be as important to me as they were. When I got pregnant, it was like, oh, well, we'll do this with a nanny. And so it was a really formative moment. Like I remember it very distinctly and I'm like, nope, I'm in family medicine. And I remember a very dear friend of mine was very wise. She passed away from cystic fibrosis for a young. So Janice, you're meant to be a family doctor. This is your call. Like you like people too much to be a specialist. Yeah. I remember again, another always associated with pregnancy, a very distinctive moment. I was pregnant with my second or third kid. I was in Vancouver for a conference and I was actually wearing pink overalls, not a good fashion choice. And I walked by a friend of mine who was, she was a, a hematologist, which is like internal medicine and two more years yeah. of training. And yeah. she was flying off to London, England to do bone marrow transplant research. And she looks at my gigantic pink belly and goes, oh, wistfully, I'll have children one day too. And I'm like, yeah, no, this is good. I'm solid. I'm glad I did family yeah. medicine. And yeah. now 31 years later, I'm very happy I did family medicine. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's it's a great fit for you. And you don't know until you actually have a child what you're going to... I remember going into a co-op work term going, yeah, I'm going to have a baby any day now, but you can book me for interviews the week after because mm-hmm. I'll be good and then I'll start my work term. But then that baby comes and it, it changed everything. And I remember you looking at me going, you're not going to... You think you're going to do that. Like Other people were looking at me like, okay, sure. Yeah, if you feel like yeah. this is what you're going to do. But it's just, you just don't know until that moment comes. And I've been lucky yeah. enough to be self-employed and, and carve out time for family and kids and community and all these things have evolved over time, but they're just not always in place right away. And, and those paths, they just find their way. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So tell me a bit about your practice. Being a female physician, do you tend to have more female patients? Do you have a huge mixture in the Valley? We have a lot of seniors. What yeah. do you, How are the demographics working out? So I was in full-time practice. My office practice now is about half-time. So I share it with another physician. We have about 1,400 people on our panel, which is considered a large panel. Predominantly women, I think it's about 57 to 60% women. Most common age group is the 50 to 65, 70th age group. That being said, we have a burgeoning young under 25 group. And that's because I delivered about 600 babies here. starting 26 years ago. So we have this big chunk of kids that I caught that a lot of them are still attached to the practice. Oh, because then they just come through and you become their their, their practitioner, right? Yeah. Yeah, They don't obviously go out and find their own. No. I mean, clearly some of the kids have moved away, but I still have a huge group of those kids that I caught over the years that deliver babies here. And so it's a funny practice in that we have a big chunk of older people and a big chunk of the zero to 25s. And that's where my heart and passion has landed is in the zero to 25 group. There's a lot of elderly, like over 70s as well. Not a lot, but fairly good sized population. Yeah. And so obviously we were just in a previous Mm -hmm. podcast, we were talking about veterinary medicine, the giant pivots they've done this year. So obviously in your practice, there's been (laughs) like, it's all gone to pretty much phone medicine yeah. and not that there aren't physical visits, but it's largely a pivot to phone medicine. So yeah. what has, obviously, I think I'm going to guess and say that's been the biggest pivot, right? Or has there been other pivots that, that the rest of us um, aren't aware of that are happening behind the scenes? No, I think probably the pivot to virtual medicine, as you've identified, has been the biggest switch. We've certainly had to put into place other IT stuff that supports that. 
And it forced physicians kicking and screaming into the 21st yeah. century to a degree. Yeah. It's hilarious. My son lives in Norway and they've been centralized and organized for years there from a computer IT medical record point of view. And it makes me weep when I see it actually compared to ours. But the last year has made a huge difference for that. Certainly, though, the, the virtual medicines push you into that. So mm-hmm. what? So someday, I say normal, someday we'll go back to normal, yeah. whatever normal is. Do you think you'll keep a lot of those things that, what do you think is going to be the stuff that you're going to be like, yeah, we're going to carry this forward for sure. And -hmm. what's the stuff that you're like, man, I just can't wait to to let go of that. Obviously wearing masks on your face all day is probably one of those things. Actually, no, I think that's probably going to stay. Yeah. And in our offices, well, we're not sick. Like I'm not getting sick anymore. I haven't been sick for almost two years. And so I think probably when you're actually examining patients and in close proximity to people who are ill, I think we will be wearing some form of PPE. Yeah. And I think we've always had the token box of masks at the door, but we haven't enforced it that well. Like during cough and cold season, they're always there. But now I think that's going to stay. I think some of the plexiglass will stay, some of the room washdowns, that kind of stuff, which is not bad. And it's become so much more socially acceptable too. Like in the first few weeks of wearing masks, I felt like everyone was staring at me for wearing a mask because mm-hmm. I started, you know, in the very beginning. And as time's gone on, obviously it's just become so much more socially acceptable when this is all over or whatever we yeah. call it. It'll probably be a lot easier to say, hey, can you mask up when you come in the door or whatever, right? And it'll be easier. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, we have seen few children that are ill. Like we're not seeing the coughs and colds walking through the door. My son-in-law works at BC Children's. He's a pediatrician. Their infectious disease ward's almost empty because we're just not seeing sick kids in, from viral infections through the winter. So I, like, I'm hoping some of that stuff like stay home if you're sick actually sticks. Actually and stays, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, we were t- talking a little bit about silver linings. I think that this is a good thing. We shouldn't be working when we're sick. We should be taking care of ourselves. We should be protecting. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good thing. I think the virtual visits will stay. Hopefully, hope to God, not as many as we're doing right now. <laughs> I'm so tired of talking to computers and phones. But yeah, I think they'll stay to some degree. Like I could see going to a hybrid model of partial phones, partial video conferencing, that kind of stuff. Certainly, it's been really strong for team meetings and stuff like that. You can do a team meeting with someone in Victoria, someone in Vancouver catch a family member from California and I'll do it on Zoom. I think that's a hugely powerful. um, For sure. Yeah. 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 And I've made friends and acquaintances from all over the world. Like I do speaking engagements now in South Africa, Scotland, Mm -hmm. like places I could never get on a plane and leave for two weeks to go to, but I can totally go there and do that. And probably for those patients that just need a quick refill or whatever, it could actually be a quick phone consult instead of having to come in. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so that's your that's your silver lining is that everyone stayed healthy, your patients are healthier. We've got the whole COVID thing, but there isn't that influenza and, and are you seeing less like pneumonia and things like that in, oh, yeah. in your senior yeah. population? I don't even think I've treated a pneumonia this year. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And actually I was looking at the flu stats. It was hilarious. I think at one point there was only twelve identified positive influenza tests in the province. So so the downside, obviously, is when you've got a patient who's really hurting or they've got a family member who's sick, there's A, there's that whole, you, they can't go into the hospital to see them. Yep. You're saying goodbye to people by Zoom. There's never, there's nothing yeah. about that. And maybe the wait times for actual physical appointments. Like, what are some of the things that you're struggling with as a physician? You can't just not show up when it's overwhelming, but you can't shut off your heart. Like, you can't just go home and just forget about everybody. Like, it's yeah. got to stick in your brain that night, stuff that's happened through the day. So how do you cope with that? And how do you think that's affecting your staff and people around you, other physicians and support staff? 
So that's a really broad question. Yeah, it is. I'm sorry. Because I was reflecting on and some of the thoughts around that. I think, let's see. You're an example of something yeah, that's come up. I think what I've learned in the last year, and it's indirectly answering your question, is that relationship is really important in healthcare. And that it is harder to garner relationship online or on the telephone. And it's a two-way thing. So a patient comes to see me, they have a concern, I support them and help them figure out what the diagnosis is, what's our treatment plan, blah, 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 blah. But there's still an exchange within that that boys both of us up. And I thought about it a lot. I was trying to pin, what is that little nuanced thing? And it's like this exchange of relationship. Yeah. And you do not get the same exchange on telephone. You do not get the same exchange on video, although video is arguably better than telephone. Like that, oh, how's your dog? How, you know, like this, oh, your kid's doing okay. It's much more uh, sterile, I would say, on telephone. And whatever it is that for me personally feeds me in that relationship has really been lacking this year and that's been hard. And we're stuck in these rooms that are no windows for a lot of us on phones and computers. And this is not what we are built for. You're not picked to be a physician because you do well staying in one room all day attached to a computer. So there's a lot of agitation and stuff around that. Both myself, I know, as well as a lot of the colleagues I work with, like, oh my God, let us out of these rooms kind of thing right at the end of the day. So that's definitely been a struggle. Sorry, go back to the original So just to even summarize a little bit before I go back, but it sounds like it's that sense of connection. Well, physical, not just physical, but that that emotional energy type connection of actually being in a room with someone and getting a sense of who they are and sharing part of their life that's beyond just the the care that you're providing. Absolutely. And I think I know for a long time I worked on how to not leave my heart out all the time because it was pretty exhausting. And I read a lot about compassion versus empathy and the idea that compassion is empathy with action. And that if you're just empathic with someone, it's like your mirror neurons are firing and you're actually feeling their physical pain and it triggers the neurons in your brain and that pain pathway. But if you're compassionate and you have empathy with a sense of action, it actually triggers on a better part of your brain. So in my personal journey, I've worked really hard towards that compassion as empathy with action. And that's a little more challenging, I find, on the phone. Yeah, for sure. But I like that. Compassion is empathy with action. Someone else, and this is totally different industry as the mortgage industry, but when something goes sideways, it's other um, person that I know, his name's Scott Peckford, but and he used to be an ambulance attendant. And he says, he always reminds himself, like, I'm just here to help. I didn't create this problem. I can't take it on personally, but I'm just here to do the best I can for this person in this situation. And that helps him to just push through those stressful times, right? And, and I think that really helps, like that exactly echoes this. Is if I can be empathic with action and support that person, but it's still their journey and not I'm not attached to their outcomes, then yeah. I actually have more resilience and I don't go home and cry every night, right? Because everybody's dying and, and whatnot. And your head's probably clear. So you're probably better able to actually think through those action steps because you're not so overwhelmed with the, all that emotion and living in someone else's situation that you can actually go, okay, well, maybe we need to do this or we could try that. or And you can actually clearly map out where you want to do. So you can be more helpful sometimes by not turning off your heart, but like you say, turning it into compassion with action rather than just full on sitting in their sitting in their misery yeah yeah that, that just makes you feel miserable and it doesn't help i mean 
sitting with someone in their pain is super important. And I think that's why empathy is developed and why we have mirror neurons. You can't stay there in my job. No, and not all day with every patient. And not all day with every patient. It's just, it's soul destroying. Yeah. But that took me a long time of practice. Like that was, that's only in the last few years I've gotten to that. Yeah. Yeah. How do you think, how do you think your fellow colleagues are coping, physicians, nurses, even receptionists, because sometimes they take the brunt of people's anger or frustration or whatever? It's definitely peaks and valleys. Just before Easter, like it was a rough time in my clinic. Everyone was very, you could tell the staff were stressed. They were taking a lot of brunt from the patients. The amount of admin time has gone up. We've had to hire another person, even though we have less people in the clinic, just to accommodate the absolutely increased admin time required for all these things. And so they were suffering a lot, actually. Fortunately, Easter came in and went to break and we try to do things in the clinic to really support the staff as well as ourselves, clearly. I'm very grateful. I have a very collaborative group I work with of MOAs and right up to my physician colleagues. So we, yeah. we're pretty good at identifying when each other are losing it and allowing space for that. But it's I think it's been really tough on the front staff, office staff. Nursing, I haven't worked at the hospital much since last year. And so I can't comment directly on what's happening in the nursing, but I've got friends that are nurses in public health. It's just, it's a tough time. It's a bit relentless. And we've all been working right from the beginning. Like we didn't right from the get-go, we didn't get the time off to make sourdough and garden, right? I remember my, one of my nurses, Courtney, she came in one day at lunch. This was about May last year. And she goes, oh my God, if one more person tells me I'm, they're bored, I'm going to kill them because this girl was out <laughs> in the parking lot doing COVID swabs. Like, yeah, I totally. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think everyone's got this sort of a bit, but there's some fatigue for sure because of the relentlessness of things. So it's an- yeah. So same line of thought yeah. as if we're going to give some advice to yeah. patients, like what can they do to make life easier for physicians, for support staff? Does it mean maybe booking two or three appointments instead of one appointment with 10 things on their list because they haven't been in for a year? Does it mean being a little kinder? What would be those little things that would actually make a difference in your day or your receptionist day or your MOA's day? Sorry, medical office assistant is a correct yeah. term, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Well, I'm going to lead with um, follow our advice. <laughs> Here's your list. Do this. Well, I think what you said right at the beginning actually was book two or three appointments. Don't save up the list. That's a nightmare. Most physicians' appointments are 10 to 15 minutes tops, and we can get a lot done in that period of time for sure. But if you've saved your list for a year, we can't get through that list. The other thing I was thinking about was start with your most important thing. So many people, like they'll have, say, three or four things. They'll say, oh, we'll just get through these things quickly. And then they're at the end of their visit and then they announce, oh, I'm having chest pain with exertion. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Well, here we are. <laughs> lead so with that. Lead with that. Yeah, lead, with, lead with the thing that you're really worried about. And like, I do understand people are nervous when they talk to us and sometimes they're like the warm up things, but I think. It, yeah, I think that's the thing. Like, I'm that way too. Like, I'm normally this most calmest person in the world. But as soon as I walk in the door of a medical clinic, I become like this walking anxiety yeah. attack. And I do. I think I sometimes I drop the things that aren't important to yeah. try to like calm myself down, relax, warm up to whatever the actual important thing is yeah. that I came here to talk about. But that's good information that really you should be starting with that big yeah. thing so that it doesn't get left for the very end so that you've got time to actually address it and deal with it. Right. Yeah. In, in veterinary medicine, we have this, not an issue, but like people's dog will be sick on Monday and then a little more sick Tuesday and then Wednesday and then nine o'clock Friday night. 
well, now we're going the weekend, so I'm worried about it. Now I want to bring it in. But that's like, at that point, it's progressed so badly and everyone's ready to go home. And it's like, if you could have just called Monday and said, I'm worried, we could have at least touched base and had some strategies. And so maybe it's a little bit that way with people. Do you find that patients in COVID are leaving stuff that should have maybe been seen a couple months ago that's now a huge thing that you could have dealt with sooner? Oh, absolutely. And I don't think it's just my own clinic. Like just looking statistically, it's going to be interesting, I think, in five years, whenever they actually run all the statistics of this period of time to look at the unintended consequences of what we've done. So the missed heart attacks, missed strokes, missed cancers. And we're definitely seeing people that don't want to bother us because you're busy. Yeah. The usual quote we get. And then they don't complain about the ulcerating mass in their breast, or they don't tell us they've been having endless problems with their abdomen or like they'll delay because either they're worried about bothering us because we're so busy or they are concerned about having tests. And I've had a lot of people delay tests because they're worried about getting COVID at the hospital. And frankly, where we live, it's not quite zero COVID, but it's really low. It's very low. And we don't, we've really not had very many hospitalized cases at all here. So Locally, it, it's it's really fear that's driving that concern about getting uh, like just routine screening tests and stuff done. But yeah, there's definitely been a fall from that. In terms of people are nervous about going to the hospital, yeah. going to the lab, it seems to me that besides the fact that we're really low numbers, it mm. seems like there's some pretty strict protocols to p- keep people safe there. Is that a, le- a legitimate fear or do you think that's really just sort I of... Think- I, well, first of all, look at where the outbreaks are happening. It's not in labs. <laughs> it's not, right? Yeah, it's not in the grocery stores. It's not, yeah. No, it's not people going for blood work. It's yeah. not at the hairdressers. I think the hairdressers need to be held <laughs> high. I think they've been amazing. No, their industry yeah. has done such a good job, yeah. right? Yeah. We're not yeah. seeing outbreaks in salons. So I think look at the practicalities of that. Most of the labs, you can book your appointment online now, so you don't even have to wait outside in line. Uh, I think they've got really good PPE procedures. Hilariously, I did not really know what PPE meant a year and a half ago. I had to look it up and that was become this thing. I I just, I hope that people have less fear about getting these investigations done. I've got one patient right now. She's avoiding being um, assessed for sleep apnea because she's afraid of the sleep apnea machine being contaminated. And it's very hard to support that and say, okay, there's been no evidence that this is a thing. And yeah, so it's fear. Same, not the same thing, but you know, talk about mental health. Have you seen mm-hmm. an increase in mental health issues? And Oh yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Depression, absolutely. anxiety, yeah. all those kinds of things. Yeah. Normally, I I remember when I was in medical school, they said about 60% of what we would see in a day would be related to mental health issues. And I went to medical school a long time ago, like over 30 years ago. I would say now it's probably about 90%. Wow. Like I thought 6-0. I actually was like, did you say 6 or 60? Mm. But you said 60 20 years ago. 30 30 years ago. ago. And I would say now, even people who just call for prescription, we don't know of right now. Oh, well, I've got you on the phone. This is what's happening. 90%. I would, in my practice, yeah, I would say so. Wow, that's unreal. I never would have guessed that. Never. So, wow. So that leads me into my mm-hmm. next question is you've started teaching uh, mindfulness training. Yeah. Do you want to tell me about that project? We've actually got a couple of things to talk about that you're doing. So I want to make sure we leave time for that. But tell me about this mindfulness training, because that sounds like a wonderful fit for this particular period of time that we're going through. I'm super excited. So six years ago, seven years ago, one of my kids was going sideways and I needed to sort my own 
uh, relationship with anxiety out. And I got into mindfulness-based stress reduction, took a course, started meditating. Then I took another course, started meditating more. And ironically, my anxiety level went down a lot and I was able to live more fulsomely. And that was where the whole loosening of attachment to my patient's outcome came from. Mm -hmm. That kind of stuff was super helpful. So I realized it was so helpful for my own journey with mental health issues that I needed to be able to give my patients something other than pills Mm -hmm. and referrals to counselors that would take forever and cost too much money. And I was fortunate enough to meet uh, physician, Dr. Mark Sherman. He's from Victoria and he started the BC Association for Living Mindfully. It was about 12 years ago. And it's a physician-led group that facilitates eight-week mindfulness-based interventions for patients uh, that's paid for by MSP, nice. which is makes it very low barrier and accessible. So I connected with him. I did training. So I've been facilitating adult classes now for, I think, about three years. Yeah. And then last year, where my real passion lies is that zero to 25 group. And I was fortunate enough to meet Dr. Zoom Bo, who's one of the leading mindfulness trainers in the world, actually, for youth programs. He works at out of BC Children's. I met him at a conference and I trained with Zoom last year. And so I'm just going into week seven of an eight-week mindfulness group with kids ages 15 to 19 right now. And it's just filling my wealth. It's been amazing. And I'm going to say that's one of one of the silver linings for me about COVID is I've actually learned to meditate this year. I don't know how it happened because I've always been like, I'm not going to, it can't do this, can't do this. Yeah. And not even just the, the meditating, but just being in the present. The other night, I was just thinking about something and I was like, stop, like you can't do anything about this right now. And you're losing this entire moment that you're in because you're spending your time in a future that hasn't happened yet with something that you can't control you can just come back and just, oh my gosh, I'm on planet earth on a beautiful sunny day in the afternoon with my family. This can wait till tomorrow when I can actually do something about it, but I can't do anything about it right now. And, and at first I thought this meditation thing, this is not working. This is just silly. But then I noticed the days that I don't meditate are the days that I start to get a little wound up and a little more snippy. And the days that I get like that, I'm like, Ooh, Oh, I forgot my meditation this morning. So even though I didn't think it was doing something for me, it was actually like clearly doing something in my head. Meditation's like the gym for life. You practice yeah. on the cushion what you roll out in your life. And it's not a quick fix, but it's a, a very fruitful fix. Yeah. Eight yeah. week course though. So that's obviously yeah. not just, we're just going to learn to meditate. There's obviously mm-hmm. a lot, you dive a lot deeper into things. And yeah. So in the kids course, we learn practices around noticing our thoughts, noticing our emotions, noticing our, our body sensations and changing our relationship with stress. You can't change stressors, but you can change how we relate to them. We talk about self-kindness and self-compassion practices. So we learn to start to talk to ourselves with a kinder voice instead of the critical voice that a lot of us are driven by. And I was driven by for a very long time. Watching kids work through this stuff is such a gift. Like they get it so much more quickly than adults. It's funny actually. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that it's covered by MSP is amazing. So hopefully we can drop some links to that in the show Mm -hmm. notes. If people want to find out more about it, that'd be fabulous. Absolutely. Second project on the show. Holy cow. (laughs) Well, my kids have moved away, Veronica. Don't remind me. I got one moving away next year. That's (laughs) my biggest stress right now. I know. Yeah. But do you want to tell me what's called the foundry, correct? Yeah, so Foundry Comax Valley is is going to be up and running in September or October this year. 
Foundry is a provincial program run through Foundry Central in Vancouver, and it is uh, basically a multidisciplinary youth clinic. And so the idea is that the foundries, which are physical building, work as a hub for youth services in the communities they service. Our nearby community, Camel Rivers, had one for three or four years now. There's, I believe, 14 up in the province right now, and they've just added eight more, which we were gratefully awarded one of the foundries last year. And basically, everything's in one spot. So we have primary care services, mental health services, substance use services, gender-affirming care, let's see what else, employment services, housing services, John Howard, like it's everything in so one So it's shot. basically one building mm, with mm-hmm. all these organizations within it that are, that are related yeah. and are connected to youth services. Exactly. And the idea is that the youth can enter at various different points. So maybe someone comes in because they're at employment services mention to the employment service person, oh, I'm really struggling with substance use. And that employment service person would walk them down the hallway to the substance use specialist and who would then connect with them and support them and then maybe walk them down the hallway now to the primary care person to get their leg ulcer dealt yeah. with whatever. Yeah. 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 So yeah. it's not actually even just all these things in one building. It's a collaborative community of providers that are Absolutely. referring back and forth to each other and on the lookout for maybe yeah. there's more we could do here. Yeah. Let's do this or do that. Absolutely. Yeah. With multiple entry points. And the idea is that the youth who come don't have to keep retelling their story all the time because that can be so difficult for kids to have to yeah. retell their story. And basically it covers ages 13 to 24. Okay. So we're grabbing that 19 to 24 year old age group, which is very underserved. Yeah. Yeah. Hugely mm-hmm. underserved. And how do they, like, how do they access it? Can they walk in off the street? Is it a yeah. physician referral? Is it a no. counselor at school referral? How does that work? All of the above really, but Foundry's basically made to be a walk-in service. Right now, of course, with the pandemic stuff's a lot is launched online, but it is a walk-in service. The schools are very integrated in it. And so school counselors can certainly refer kids in or just drop kids off. But there's a lot of back and forth. And actually, the mindfulness program I'm just doing with the, the local youth is sponsored by Comox Valley Foundry. Okay. And so that basically, they are the supporting body that's helped me do this. Interesting. Okay, that's mm-hmm. great. For the city to uh, get this or building permits. It's been approved. Basically, you've been granted the the magic wand to say, go do this. And, and now you're going to start rolling it out. Yeah. So hopefully by the fall, we'll be up and running. And I'm super excited to be the medical director. That's kind of, it's been a great project and quite a passion of mine for about four or five years to get one into the Valley. And what a great accomplishment to do that. And so fulfilling and to be part of it from its inception, not just stepping into it later to watch it grow, right? So speaking about the Foundry, how is this funded? So it's publicly funded with additional private donations to help subsidize it or how does that work? Yeah. So basically the province puts money out, the health authorities put money into it. There's also private endowment that provides funding and then each community does its own fundraising. Okay. So the John Howard of Comox Valley, which is part of the John Howard North Island, is actually our main or our lead agency. And on their website, they'll have a donate button so people can actually donate directly to Foundry Comox Valley. And there's also going to be fundraising activities and stuff. And so that funding will go into developing specific programs. So there's a lot of youth-informed programs around. Um, like the LGBTQ community or the BIPOC community. They have like uh, food programs and stuff and a lot of 
the funding that arrives from the local people is what goes into funding those programs. Okay, awesome. So if anyone wants to get involved with that, they want to support Mm -hmm. that, we will have some links uh, later in the show notes. So I think we're just about wrapping up again. We're going to drop some links to that in the show notes to how people can find out more about it if you've got links set up yet. And if not, we'll add them in later. But last question I ask everyone, the time travel question, if you could go back and give your 10-year-old self some advice or what would you tell her? What would you do differently? It's funny. I I was reflecting on that question because you didn't really heads up on that. I would tell my 10-year-old self to chill out a bit. I was pretty anxious and pretty driven. I, I would tell myself to get out in nature more. I found hiking about 15 years ago and, and getting out in the woods more. And that was one of those things I think I, it would have been very helpful to have been doing more when I was younger, like in my 20s. I would absolutely say stay active. I would have suggested meditating, not waiting until I was 50, but getting on yeah. that train when I was a lot younger. And other than that, I'm pretty happy with how my whole like career-wise and just opportunities family medicine's given me because as I delivered tons of babies yeah. and then I did lactation consulting and you can recreate yourself a lot in the career I've chosen. Yeah. And so many relationships to build over the years. Like when you think about that, most people might have relationships with a fraction of that amount of people in their lifetime, mm-hmm. but to be able to cultivate that many relationships over mm-hmm. that many years and to watch these little babies that you deliver grow into young adults is just a phenomenal gift right it's an absolute joy actually yeah yeah it's that vicarious joy i love it okay well wonderful well thank you very much for joining me that's it for this week to get more information on any of my guests or to book me as a speaker at your next event please visit jugglingwithoutballs.ca and you would totally make my day if you left me a review or you sent me an email at monica at jugglingwithoutballs.ca and let me know what you got out of this week's episode. I'm hoping to read some of those reviews and some of those emails on future episodes. Have a great week, jugglers. 